Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. So today we start a series called Powerful Me. And it's a title that's a bit nauseous to me. It kind of makes me want to gag. Uh, so I'm going to try to have to explain to you why I pick a title that I don't really like because it reminds me of all those overblown self-help book titles. You know, the titles like, uh, I just looked up a few. I don't want to, I don't want to say the author's name. There's this title called Ageless Body and Timeless Mind. I'm not sure that fits me. The Ultimate Happiness Prescription. Or, or here's one that really is great. The ultimate morning ritual. How to wake up productive, happy, and motivated every day. The ultimate principles of success. I think all these ultimate books were written by the same person. So can I just ask a question, the obvious question? If these are the ultimate principles, not the average ones, that nobody else can write anything better, why does he keep writing new books? Because that doesn't make sense, does it? Okay, so they all feel a little bit tight to me. They all feel a little bit unrealistic. And I think there's a journalist, Rebecca Nappi, who writes, a, writes a, a, an editorial that I think captures the sense of why some of these titles and these books, uh, especially as we get older, feel trite and feel too controlled. She writes this. She says, in 1993, Susan Powder wrote the self-help book, Stop the Insanity, Filled with the advice on changing the way you look and feel forever. Powder had closely cropped silver hair and a killer body. The book detailed her journey to success. Lose a little weight, gain some strength, and your whole life will change, she wrote. And you can accomplish things you never thought possible. Nappy, the journalist, goes on and continues to write. She says, in my late teens, I started reading self-help books. I passed them to friends and family like sacred texts. From Codependent No More to The Cinderella Complex to Fat as a Feminist Issue, the books circulated from friend to friend. I also was a huge fan of M. Scott Peck, God bless his road-less-traveled soul, and Deepak Chopra, and I also loved Ram Dass and Wayne Dyer. Through most of the 1990s, the economy rocked, the budget deficit morphed into surplus. Even the decade's name, the 1990s, had a take-charge ring to it. In the 1990s, my friends and I, she writes, and sometimes the the entire country believed in the power of change through self-control and hard work. And then September 11th happened. Around the same time, the newspaper business started to decline and journalist friends lost their jobs, foreshadowing the downsizing of the rest of the economy that arrived later. My friends and family members grew older. Some struggled with chronic illnesses of body and mind, illnesses so complex that no amount of hard work and willpower could cure them. Many of the self-help writers I admired, she says, hit their own life snags. Peck confessed he had cheated on his wife in their entire marriage. They later divorced. He suffered from Parkinson's and died of pancreatic cancer. Powder went bankrupt. Ram Dass had a stroke. Dyer had a heart attack and his wife left him. Nappy continues, five years ago when I turned 50, I stopped with the self-help books. Stopped reading them. Stopped gifting them. Stopped hoping to someday write my own. But the writers have not stopped penning them. The writers of these bestsellers still believe individuals can control their lives through sheer effort and willpower, can change forever the way they look and feel. She says, I've lost the belief. 
and it's both a relief and a mourning. The only self-help book I'm qualified to write now, she says, where I so inclined would be a slim volume titled, I don't know, but thank you for asking. (laughs) Can you relate? I've read plenty of self-help books. Sure, there's some valuable insight that I've gained for my life through many of them. But the I am powerful. I can control my own universe. I can build my own self-esteem and always be happy. It just kind of feels hollow and unreachable to me. So why did I use the title Powerful Me, which reminds me of that so much? It's because of this. Because I was praying over the holidays and while they were all doing a lot of work to try to get all those holiday productions off, I was trying to plan the next year and praying, and I felt like God gave me uh, an impression that He wants us to change the way we view ourselves in 2014, to not see ourselves as primarily struggling, hoping to make it people, or to not see ourselves as a church as uh, struggling in some ways, but to see ourselves as powerful, in ways that can only be described as beautiful, good, and amazing. See, we are created in the image of God. And we should have a powerful way of looking at who we are. And, and, and instead of living life out of a questioning anxiety or a questioning concern, to live life out of a winsome place of conviction and confidence, this kind of enduring faith, this kind of faith that we admire in other people when they go through challenging or difficult times and come out the other side stronger, more vibrant, more beautiful people. Uh, for example, there's a, there's a guy named Frankie. He was, he was born with a disease. He was born with a disease that made his tongue act like a tumor, and it grew and grew and grew and grew till it stuck out all the time, just hanging out. As a young kid, he was fine. He learned to talk. He learned to cope with it. It wasn't a big deal. But when he went to school, it was different. The teasing started. The jokes started. Uh, People would try to punch him or push him or or make him think they were going to punch him so that he'd bite his tongue and then they'd laugh. Even, even some of the Christian kids that were at school with him teased him mercilessly. And that was his mostly dark life in school, sad life in school because of his rejection and, and also partly because of his gifting. He spent a lot of time at home dreaming, imagining stories, imagining stories in his, heads of dra- in his head of dragons, of good and evil, of heroes of faith, overcoming difficult circumstances. In spite of the abuse and the pain, he discovered that he had a gift for acting and writing. In spite of the abuse and the pain, somehow his faith became stronger, not more disillusioned. And uh, as we know him today, Frank Peretti, went on to write uh, over novels that sold over 15 million books into pastor churches. And whether you like his books or not, it's stories of faith like that that we all want to be like. We want to have the kind of faith that becomes infectious and strong through all kinds of circumstances in life regardless. The series we're going to start right now is going to be based largely on the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a book written by Paul from prison. From prison. 
Now, we know from the circumstances that a lot of his prison experience was house arrest, but we also know that from, from what is written and recorded that he had not only the minimum security prison experience, he had the maximum security death camp-like prison experiences where he was bloodied and bruised and beaten and dung-filled and cold, rat-filled cells that he had to experience. Not for something he did wrong, but for just being a person who reached out to the marginalized to society, preached to the poor, preached forgiveness and kindness. In fact, he even preached submission to the authorities, the very ones who were putting him in prison, and yet he's put in prison nonetheless. We're going to see over the coming weeks that in Ephesians, Paul spends a lot of time describing who God is in amazingly beautiful ways and who we are and how God most importantly views you and I and how beautiful and strong He views us, showing us that that we can be people who are humbly powerful in the way we live life, regardless of the circumstances. I'm excited to see what God's going to do through this. We've actually got three series this year already planned around this idea. The first one is Powerful Me, Realizing God's Picture of You. Over the Lenten series, we're going to take something called, what we're going to call a leap of faith. And we're we're going to not only be preaching on Sundays, but doing some other things about discovering the powerful purpose God has for us in life. A leap of faith into God's destiny. Powerful purpose is going to be the series. And later in the year, sometime, we're going to do a series called Powerful We. Being the church, God extravagantly blesses, asking ourselves the questions, what what is it about church that God wants to make so powerful, and how do we achieve that? And, And then going even beyond that, what is it just about relationships in general that God wants to bless in our lives? It's going to be a good year. So powerful me, realizing God's picture of you, seeing yourself like God sees you. Now, we miss God's picture of us all the time. I know, I know we, I know we know what He thinks of us. We could probably answer on a on a multiple choice question the correct answer, but but we don't really get it a lot of times, and it's because we see ourselves all too often from two through two, one of two lenses. The first one is that we see ourselves all too often struggling with our sin, or messed up, or failing, or or weak, or we see ourselves through the lens of comparison. I do pretty good. I measure up fairly well. But even with that lens, deep down, either one of those lenses, we still realize deep down we have these weaknesses and we're still not good enough. Both of these views, there's truth in them, right? We each know we need the kind of forgiveness that both of those views give us. And we we even get our view of ourselves confused even more when we hear church doctrines like original sin. But the story of who we are doesn't begin or end with our sin. The story of how we are to see ourselves begins with creation and how good and perfect God created us in His image. And it ends, if we're following Christ and have surrendered our lives to Him, with that picture of being redeemed back to that original, created, good, powerful being. Now, we're created in the image of the most powerful God. I mean, just let's start with that. If we're created in His image, what does that say about us? God wants us to have a powerful self-esteem. Now, there are preachers who would agree with that last statement that I just made. 
they hate the word self-esteem. And they, they talk about self-esteem and say it's bad, it's self-centered, it's unbiblical of an idea. And, well, sure, self-esteem is built a lot of times on things that aren't very biblical in the literature that we read in the self-help world. But to say that self-esteem is bad is exactly like throwing out the baby with the dirty bathwater. We all have self-esteem, a way that we view and think about ourselves. And yes, much of the pop culture self-esteem leaves us hollow, leaves us with no lasting base upon which to feel strong about us. Why? Because in reality, self-esteem is a way of viewing ourselves and thinking about ourselves that is completely attached to the idea of worship. See, if self-esteem is built on our performance, our ability to do things well, we're worshiping what that gives us. We're worshiping that feeling of competence or that feeling of strength that comes to us. If self-esteem is built on our looks, we're, lo- we're worshiping that image that we think says to ourselves, we are good enough or the approval others give us as the only way we can feel good about ourselves. So when you begin to age and Wrinkles come and sags come in places we don't want them and muscles don't work like we want them to do. We struggle. Paul actually starts telling us how we should think about ourselves. With his normal salutation, he begins every letter that he writes. He says, grace and peace, reminding us that it's only in the love and the forgiveness of Christ that we can find peace and identity. But even then, we hear those words and we say grace, and what does grace immediately bring up in your mind? Doesn't, when you think of grace, you think of your weakness, right? You think of your need for something. You think of God's need to cover your back end for you, right? Isn't that what we normally think about? We even think about it based upon our definition of grace. The most common definition of grace I heard growing up, maybe you've heard it too, is this, that it's God's unmerited favor. Well, unmerited Again, that's focusing on my lack, right? It's focusing on my weakness. I want to add a layer to that definition of grace for us today, maybe even challenge it slightly. Let's look at Luke 2, verse 40. It talks about Jesus in this passage. And it says, Jesus, the child, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus needed and lived in the grace of God. And yet the Bible teaches us that Jesus Jesus never sinned. So grace for Jesus was not unmerited, was it? Grace must be something more. It must be more positive. It must be more beautiful. And still something needed by all. Let me just take a stab at giving a little bit different definition to it. Grace is the empowering presence of God that enables you to become the person God envisioned you to be from the very beginning of creation. Grace is the presence of God that enables you to become the person God envisioned you to be in His creation. The person God sees when He looks at you. The text of Ephesians goes on, and remember, Paul's writing this in prison, and he he does something he doesn't always do at the beginning of his text. He, He starts off this letter with this bursting, joyful barrage of this massive run-on sentence of worship. It's almost as if he can't write fast enough or 
talk fast enough to get it all out. It's just like this dam, this bursting dam of wonder and worship. And in the Greek, it's one long sentence. And in, in English, well, no translators ever try to translate it in one sentence because it's just too cumbersome and too difficult. We're going to read the whole thing right now in just a real quick fashion. And today we're going to focus on one small part of it. We're going to come back to it in the coming weeks and look at it more. Verse 3 of Ephesians. And it reads like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, in which He has blessed us in His beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and in Insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That's a big mouthful for one sentence, isn't it? I don't even know how He did it. You have to breathe like ten times in there. Today we're just going to look at the first verse of that and then one of the phrases. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Past tense. This is a done deal. It's not something still to come. It's here. It's now. It's a done deal. Blessed us in Christ with every. Absolute language. Not some, not one, not a few, not many, not most, not much. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every possible spiritual blessing needed in the entire universe He has already given us. And it's not blessed like um, bless your little heart. It's not blessed like we say bless you to wish somebody well. I think Tim Keller defines it best. Blessing is every joy and benefit that your heart and soul Need and long for. That's what it means when God says the word blessed. Question. Do you feel or are you worthy of every spiritual blessing? Do you live life thinking that you are? Because God says you're worthy. He considered the price worth it to pay for saving you, for redeeming you. He considered it worth it. Every spiritual blessing, how amazing and how wonderful. How do we live in every spiritual blessing and realize what is already given to us more and more each day? 
And is it given to everyone? And the answer to that is no, it's offered but not given to everyone. So how do we get it? Let's look at the text again. There's this, this phrase used in the text ten times. Most commonly, it's just simply said, in Him. And we talk about the meaning of what this in Him means on a regular basis around here for two reasons. We talk about it because it really is the basis for our mission statement. It's, it's all about, our, our mission is all about relationships. But it's also, number two, about the fact that it, it, it gets at the core of our lifelong human struggle in faith and in trying to figure out how we have a decent self-esteem. Is your faith and is your self-esteem built on how good you are? Or is your faith and your self-esteem built on how good you were made and how perfectly, perfectly you are redeemed and loved? The text talks about blessings. And it says that these blessings are based on being in Him, legally united with Christ. In Him. Let's, let's illustrate it this way. In most of the world... If someone who is very poor marries someone who is very rich, the very second that the I do's are done and they are pronounced man and wife, that very poor person has everything the very wealthy person has. All their belongings are now theirs. Every spiritual blessing. God is unique that He has no prenups. There's no limitations. Every spiritual blessing is given. Being a Christian and given all the blessings by God is not a process. It is a point in time. It is a time when we make that transition from not being all in with God to being all in with God. Even if we spend a lifetime trying to figure out how to enjoy and how to receive and how to be a part of all those blessings, it is not a point in time. Now, that doesn't mean that for all of us we've had this wow moment where we just experienced God and everything changed. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy I know, Chris. I uh, knew him back in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And Chris was an EMT, and he, he wasn't a believer. And he started hanging around a pastor friend of mine and some of, some, of, some of the other friends. And for a long time, he frankly just didn't believe half of what they said. It was just kind of crock to him. Over the time, he practiced prayer and he read the Bible and he continued to talk to them. And as he told it to me, he said, one day, he says, Ross, one day I woke up and all of a sudden I believed, you know what? I've been believing that this Jesus is real. I've been experiencing him. I've been knowing. I, I, I don't know when it happened, but it's been going on for some time right now. And he says, so I just said, I, I woke up more morning, said, I guess I better be baptized. And, uh, if that's you, you don't have to have a point in time. There was a point in time. He can't define it. But if that's you, take the plunge. Get baptized. The next time we offer baptism, uh, talk to Jeremy. For all, there is a point in time at which we jump in with both feet in belief and following Him. And those who do, those who are all in with God, have every spiritual blessing the minute they establish that relationship. It's because of relationship. Those who haven't jumped in do not have every spiritual blessing because of relationship. 
Next, the text doesn't attempt to enumerate every spiritual blessing in this. It does highlight a few. We talked about one of them a little while ago, adoption, the image of a parent and child and heirs and no longer being servants and slaves and how an amazing difference that really makes if we understand that we are adopted in the way we view God and the way we view ourselves. There's another loaded word that we've talked a little bit about as well that's enumerated as one of the spiritual blessings in this passage, and it's this word redemption. And we've talked about that in the past, that it's not just paying a debt. It's not like, you know, paying a debt is like just getting a ticket for speeding and you pay the ticket, right? We talked about that. But redemption is more than that. Redemption is more like your car got impounded and you have to pay a ransom to get it out, to to get it out of slavery so that you can restore your relationship with it. Redemption is so much more. It is liberating. It is releasing from slavery, from bondage into the freedom and I, and I love the way, I'm going to use the kind of the general thought pattern of the way uh, Tim Keller has explained this as well, because he used a, a really interesting illustration talking about Gandhi. Gandhi was an avid student of all religions, including Christianity. And uh, he made a statement that I think everybody who studies religion will agree upon. He said that all religions agree on one thing, that humans are not free. All humans are slaves. We are all slaves to our selfishness. We are all slaves to our egos. We live life grasping at things because our egos are needy. And so take it into our language today. We grasp at things to define our self-esteem like so that we get a need met. Whatever need we think needs to be met in order to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, whether it comes through money or power or our need to look good or our need to be affirmed. And Gandhi said that, that basically all religions agree that that kind of grasping makes us miserable in life. And interestingly enough, he said this. He said this. He said that Christianity has the most amazing answer to this grasping for need, meeting our ego's needs. He says in Jesus, Gandhi says in Jesus, we have this way to be freed from our selfishness and our egocentricity that enslaves us and binds us. And what is that? He says it's simply this: that Jesus was the ultimate example of nonviolence of deferring and giving up wealth and power. The ultimate sacrificial service is found in Jesus, forgiving and loving and serving and dying for others. And this is what Gandhi said. He said, when you see that, it will move you and liberate you from your own selfishness and your own egocentricity. All that, there's truth in that, right? It all sounds good, right? But Keller comes back and makes, I think, this really incisive point. And I quote, he says, With all due respect for Gandhi's view, that doesn't really work for me or for you. The problem is that Jesus' life is perfect. He's this pure life. He's this man who's completely free of the need for security and approval or power. And Keller goes on and says, when I see him loving and serving and dying for everyone, it doesn't liberate me or make me feel better. It crushes me, he says, because I can't live like that. It makes me feel worse. I've got to agree with him. When I think of faith and religion like Gandhi, as Jesus is the one I need to live up to, I just want to go away. I just want to give up. I can't live that perfect. I just want to go away and hang my head. 
Yet the Bible does teach us that Jesus helps us and that Jesus is our example. We're to imitate him. So how do we understand what Jesus did for us in that way? Well, Jesus helps us understand why we're enslaved, why we're selfish, why we're mastered, why our ego is so needy and why we're so driven, why our self-esteem is built on the wrong things and we can never be humbly powerful like he created us to be unless, unless we understand that he's already given us everything, every blessing needed. See, the self-help books leave us in the trap of we've got to earn it. We've got to keep working for it. We've got to be really controlled. We've got to prove ourselves because we feel weak, because we feel vulnerable, not accepted or loved at some level. And the rest that we want to have in life of our spirit, the rest and peace of spirit that we want and that the Bible promises is elusive because instead of because we're building our we're building our success we're building our self-esteem on success layered on success as our identity and we live stressed lives because we constantly have to do better or we constantly have to preserve what we've done and not let the house of cards fall because even if we think our house is indestructible because we've got strong enough ego deep down we know better Think of, it, think of it this way. Whatever you're involved with that consumes your effort in life, whether it's career or parenting or some passion you have or some mission that you volunteer for, let, let's just take it out of that and let's just put it in career for a moment. If you care about the success of your career, then if you're not doing well, you're going to feel sad. If someone is in your way and blocking you, making it difficult, you're going to feel mad, right? If there's some sort of threat to your effectiveness in your career, you're going to be a little anxious. And there's a certain amount of that that's really normal. I mean, God created us with normal emotions. But if instead, when you're not doing well, you're devastated, or when somebody's blocking your way, you melt down in anger, or the anger bleeds over into all areas of your life, or when you feel like you might not be effective, you become paralyzed with fear, then you're not serving God. Your career is a way to make yourself feel better about yourself. You are worshiping the outcome and the feeling that you get from the outcomes, and you're not serving God because it's about meeting your own needs. So you can say, I feel good about myself. I'm all right. And you are serving your career. You are enslaved by your career, and it's killing you. Now, you can say the same thing about parenting. You could say the same thing about your pursuit of a certain GPA. You can say the same thing about, about your pursuit of being involved in sports or marriage or dating and how you respond to difficulty in those settings. If you love anything more than God, it will enslave you and drive you into the ground. When things are not going well as you want, when a loss occurs, whether it's a loss of a dream or a loss of a job or a tragic death of someone close to you, you will melt down and you will struggle longer than needed if you're worshiping that and not God. And unlike the people we all admire, like Paul 
like Frank Peretti, or maybe like your grandmother or aunt or your friend or somebody that you saw go through really difficult times and come out the other side stronger and a more beautiful and vulnerable and joyful person on the other side. Instead of being like that, you will experience a different destination in terms of your self-esteem. But if we, like Paul, understand the reality of our world and the effects of sin on the reality of our world, and that our story doesn't begin and end with sin. It begins with God's creation of us. And that His love is so deep for us that He considers us worthy of redeeming and giving us all the benefits because He considered paying the price worth it. If we learn to cultivate and release this same type of extravagant, bursting heart of worship that Paul has and models for us in in writing from prison, in spite of the difficulty in life, cultivating extravagant worship in our life around the fact that God has given us every spiritual blessing even in those moments, not because we earned it, but because we're created in His image. We're His child we're united with Him, if, if, if you will, in marriage. Then and only then will we be free from the slavery of pop self-help and instead we'll be liberated into this powerful me, into this secure me, into this valued and loved me, into this free me that God originally intended us and created us to be because of being in Him. United, in essence, in marriage to Christ, we have every spiritual blessing given to us. Now, we haven't received it yet, right? If we had, our lives would be the epitome of the overblown self-help book titles, right? We would be ultimately happy, ultimately successful. So how do we learn to receive the spiritual blessings more deeply? It really comes through spiritual habits. One of them is meditation. I call it pondering a lot of times. If we will focus and allow ourselves to really ask God the questions, what are these spiritual blessings you want? And focus on those instead of our needs, pondering them in worship first. And if we learn to cultivate worship like Paul models for us, because the Bible teaches us that worship is what God inhabits. The Bible says God inhabits worship, His presence inhabits worship, which means that's where we experience grace, this empowering presence of God to come to us and rewire our emotions, rewire how we view the world, rewire how we think about others, about Him, and we express it in worship. So I'm going to give you a chance today to respond in both those ways. So if the worship team can begin to come. I'm going to kind of do a two-part thing here. I'm going to ask you, and if you want to close your eyes, you can. If you don't, that's fine, whatever. I'm going to ask you just to take a moment to ask God a question. Now, don't, don't ask it like this abstract question. I want you to, in your own heart, ask it to God like He's standing right in front of you because He is here. His presence is here. He's always with us. So ask the question to Him. And then, uh, and then I'm going to come out the back end of this time where I give you a moment to think and l- allow God to speak to you. And I'm going to pray. And then we're going we're gonna to worship and we're going to invite you to come and receive communion while we worship uh, and just respond in this way to God. So here's the question I want you to ask God. or In your own words, ask Him, what would be different in my life if I truly believed I was united with you and had every spiritual blessing I would ever need. Just say, Jesus, and let Him speak to you. 
Let him trust that the thoughts that come to mind are going to be him. How would my life be different if I truly believed I was united with you as though it were marriage and had every spiritual blessing I would ever need? Let him speak to you. Worship. God inhabits worship. Some of you came today and you've got, uh, you've got some needs and maybe even just this upbeat worship felt like too much for you. I've been in places at times where I've been to church and been in grief or been in mourning where up stuff like this was too much for me. Worship for you in those moments is going to be things like staying after and letting us pray for you. Because that's turning towards God. Worship for you is going to be a different set of songs. But Paul's lesson to us today is in prison. When we don't feel like it is when we need to learn to cultivate worship. Because God's presence comes and meets us there. If you came today with a need, we'd love to pray for you. God bless. Let's have a great week worshiping God. If you don't sing, just yell it out in your car. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.